Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thanks. Uh, we were worried it was going to be a little toasty in here, but it feels like it's okay. Um, but glad you guys could join us. Uh, hope you're all staying cool. It feels like we kind of skipped over the really pleasant part of spring. We just got a whole lot of rain. Uh, the allergies hit really hard, and now we're just like sweating and hot. Uh, but it's good to be here with you all this morning. Um, Today, I'm going to continue on in our series on the Beatitudes out of Matthew 5. Hillary started this series for us last week. Um, and just a heads up, for the rest of the summer, the rest of the fall, we're actually spending an extended time to go through the entire Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Uh, really excited to just be spending uh, extended time in Scripture. Uh, I think that's really the basis of all that we do, all that we believe, uh, and so really looking forward to it. So buckle in uh, and join us um, as we go through it all uh, this summer and fall. Um, but we're looking at the Beatitudes and saying, uh, or the, the little subtitle blurb that we came up with was uh, the Beatitudes painting a picture of Christian, uh, or a life of Christian character. Um, that's really what we're talking about. These eight Beatitudes have this structure of blessed are blank, whether it's those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, followed by a blessing. Today we're looking at the second one, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 4, super short. I'll read it for us. This is what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of God. Now the Beatitudes have this kind of reversal uh, to them where, where we wouldn't think of being poor in spirit as, as such a brilliant and bright and blessed state of being. And the same is true, similarly, when we think of mourning, it's not a state where we might think, oh, this is such a blessed place to be. If anything, we might consider those who mourn to be worthy of pity, those who mourn to be even somewhat uncomfortable. And we might be quick to even ask, why or how did they end up where they are? See, as a culture, we're not good at mourning. We're actually not good at dealing with pain in general, whether it's inflicted on us through disease, through aches, through aging, whatever might be going on. We're pretty pain-averse as a society. We love our get there quick, whatever the there is, whether it's to be rich, slim, fit, informed, organized, and productive, whatever it might be, we like getting there quickly. We like um, just seeing the results. But even deeper than that, we as a church, or the church in general, are also not too good at this. On Sundays, everyone seems to be doing well. Uh, we call it our Sunday best, whether it's our attire, our smiles, our demeanor, what we talk about. And I want to make a quick plug. Our hope groups are the place to go beyond there, um, to share life, to talk about the things that are actually going on, um, and to connect. But even church culture struggles to engage well this conversation of pain, of, of mourning, of grief, of lament. Even our songs reflect this. Um, there's an author, Sung Chan Ra, he's a professor at North Point Theological Seminary. He gives some statistics about this in his book, Prophetic Lament, which, by the way, is a great uh, a book that gives a biblical lens on examining how the church uh, relates to suffering in our world. 
um, by looking at the book of Lamentations. But in it, he says that lament constitutes 40% of all the Psalms, but only 13% of the hymnal of the Church of Christ, 19% of the Presbyterian hymnal, and 13% of the Baptist hymnal have themes of lament, of talking about our pain, of mourning. He goes on to say that the CCLI, which is this group that does all the licensing for the songs that we sing, and it's a whole thing, but in um, their list uh, in 2012 of the top 100 worship songs in America, only five of those songs would qualify as touching on this topic of lament. So all around, we're just not good at engaging this space. And I know it's heavy to talk about on a Sunday. I know it's a heavy start to a sermon, but I think it's so rich and valuable to be here. Um, now, we've said that the Beatitudes paint a picture of Christian character, of life as a Christian. It has to do with our faith, uh, what we believe about God, and what it means to live life with God. Last week, Hillary mentioned that the first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, kind of sets the foundation for all of the others, really pointing us to that relationship to God. And while I think it is so helpful and such a gift to talk just about lament and pain in our society, in our day and age, in this fast-paced, achievement-based kind of a place to be, I think it's rich to talk about pain and lament. But the mourning that Jesus talks about here goes beyond that. It's a very specific kind of mourning. It's the mourning of sin, the mourning of evil, the mourning of godlessness and brokenness. And this mourning is a recognition that we, that I, fall short of living in or even understanding God's design, His call, His good will for our lives. And this mourning goes beyond just mental assent or acknowledgement of these things but it involves sitting with the frustration, the sadness, even the anger that comes from truly grappling with our sin. See, in Paul, he, he mourns his sin. He gives us an example of this in Romans 8, uh, 7 rather. In Romans 7, verse 16 to 19, he says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. <laughs> Gets a little confusing, but he's kind of frustrated. I can kind of get that from, the, from his words. Verse 21 to 24, he goes on to say, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He mourns his sin. But this mourning that Jesus talks about goes beyond even our personal sin and grappling with what's going on in my life or maybe your life. It goes beyond and covers the misalignment and disconnection between God's design and the realities of our community, our city, our country, even our race and our whole world. It gets really big. And Psalm 2 echoes this in its first opening verses. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. 
second, where the first beatitude presents a recognition that we cannot save ourselves, this second one reminds us that even after the fact, we still fall short, both on a personal level and on these broader scopes that pan out to humanity and the world. And so it makes sense that this is a hard conversation for us as those who live in America, as those who live in the New York City area where this is the place where dreams come true, anything is possible. We've come here because for, to a certain degree we are successful and good at what we do and we've come here to attain more of that. We like being competent, self-sufficient, and we don't like the discomfort of needing others. You see, our inability to mourn our sin doesn't just speak to our culture and what's around us, but it speaks to even our broken views of God and the gospel. And so this morning, I want to address a few tendencies that, we, that might pull us away from mourning our sin. Uh, and this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, it's just three. Um, nor is it like a clean set of options, like we only do one, two, or three, or we're really good at making ways not to do this. We're really good at making ways to sin. But the three tendencies that I want to talk about are how we might diminish our need to mourn, deny our need to mourn, and the third is that we might distract ourselves from our need to mourn. And while I do want to talk about how we might avoid mourning our sin, I still want to recognize that these tendencies can apply to how we talk about pain or mourning in general. And so our first one, um, we might diminish our need to mourn. And by that, I mean we might make light of the gravity of sin. We might say it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. And this might push us to comparing ourselves to other people. Sure, I need grace. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm not like whatever that slot is filled with in your mind, in our minds. In doing so, we magnify the sin of others and we make ourselves feel better. And in Jesus' day, those were the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the adulterer, those who would be so shameful that they couldn't be uh, in communion with the people of God. And we might do the same and look at ourselves and think we're doing fine. There's no real need to mourn my sin. And when we diminish our need to mourn our sin, what we do is we actually make light of the cross. In our mindset and our conduct, we stubbornly tell God that the consequence and gravity of sin is light, and we make a mockery of Christ's work of the cross. See, our faith is one that celebrates and glorifies an unjustly crucified deity who suffered in order to bring salvation and new life to those who could never attain it for themselves. Those who deserved eternal separation from God, hell. And to make light of all of that is to make a mockery of our Savior and stands against the core of our faith. And when it comes to pain more broadly, we might still diminish our pain, our suffering, our negative thoughts, our feelings that we're experiencing. We might say that it's not that big a deal. I can handle it. I've got all of these pressures and things going on, all of these responsibilities, people leaning on me, but I can handle it. We might say that it's just until the next thing, the next promotion, vacation, or milestone in life, I'll actually take care of myself and deal with these big problems tomorrow. I can handle this state of stress or dysfunction more than other people can. And often that's celebrated. 
And in this mode, we can easily become silent sufferers with a, by starving ourselves to feed some kind of savior complex. And unfortunately, this is celebrated when we would all do better off just laying it down. The second tendency is that we might deny our need to mourn. And by this, I mean to say that we might puff ourselves up to say, I'm actually good. I don't need a savior. I don't need helping. I don't, I don't have to mourn. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm not bad. I don't really sin. I do so much good, actually. <laughs> and in this, we might still compare ourselves to others, but rather than magnify their sin, we might magnify and flaunt the good that we see in ourselves. See, the Pharisees, uh, they followed parts of God's law to the T. They tithed. They gave 10% of what they had, their wealth, their money, down to their spices. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. See, God's standard is perfection to love him and love others. But perfection is unattainable on our own right merit and effort. The law was given um, by God to, to his people through Moses. The sacrificial system was established as a way for them to be forgiven. It was all to point to the fact that humanity could never be perfect, never could be good enough before a holy and sovereign God, and that we needed a Savior, a greater sacrifice, Christ himself. You see, when we puff ourselves up and try to lean on our own accomplishments, again, in our mindset and conduct, maybe not in our words, we arrogantly replace Christ as our Savior and we put ourselves there. And when it comes to good deeds and, and trying to save ourselves, working and trying to strive to be good enough, pushing aside God's invitation of grace, the Bible calls our deeds dirty and filthy rags. And in this tendency, we diminish our need for a Savior by puffing ourselves up, diminish our need to mourn and sin. And Sung Chan Ra kind of describes it like this. When we function in this mode, we, it's like we come to a funeral and pretend there isn't a dead body in the room. We deny reality, is what he says. And again, I want to turn back to pain more generally. Here too, we can deny our pain. Um, even when we are in pain, we might say, I'm actually thriving. Look at all the good things that are going on. I'm building up my portfolios, my career, my resume, my family. And while those are not bad things, those are actually good things, they can become tools to cover up our need, to recognize our hardship, to cover up work that needs to be done inside giving voice to stress and, and just how tired and overwhelmed we might actually be. We can even hyper-spiritualize these things by saying, yes, life is hard right now, but God has given me all of these great opportunities, so how could I ever say things are bad or not, not great? It could be worse. My pain is nothing compared to the pain of other people around me. And with that last one, under the guise of saying, oh, I see things as they are, right? My life isn't that hard. 
we can actually use that to again hide what's going on, to deny that we're going through a hard time. And here, I want to take a quick aside um, and address the church, the Christians here in this room, because I want to recognize that maybe not everyone um, is a Christian, um, but church, Christian, um, I want to present a challenge for us today. See, if our most readily accessible tools for navigating and managing pain and suffering are to diminish and deny our experience, what are the chances that we could effectively extend compassion to others in their moments of pain and suffering? If we can't bear witness to our own experience of pain, wouldn't it only make sense that we would be far less compassionate with the pain of others? Even when it comes to the gospel, there's a similar parallel. Though with our words we might say, yes, grace, our lives might declare that the sin of our lives and the cross was no big deal, that salvation is actually based on my own works and I can save myself. And even though we might not say that, it might be the witness that our lives present to one another in the church to non-believers, to opponents of our faith. This should not be. For we are saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is grace given to us that we call it good news. But let me bring us back to our third tendency. Um, I promise it gets better. <laughs> The third tendency I want to talk about today is how we might distract ourselves from mourning. To keep ourselves busy, to keep ourselves distracted by any means necessary. And beyond just our demanding schedules and responsibilities, see, we're really well equipped to distract ourselves. From binge-watching shows to um, the fatigue of news feeds, the mind-numbing pastime of doom-scrolling down through social media, We've got a treasure trove of, of ways to distract ourselves within arm's reach most of our waking hours. On top of that, we can allow work and side hustles to commandeer all of our waking hours to the point of exhaustion using our effort, success, and hustle as a way to keep from mourning and sitting with the experience of pain. We can crave, covet, and claw after experiences, excitements, and pleasures, distorting the beauty of hobbies and the gift of creation. We can even plummet into the extremes and slipperier slopes of substance abuse and drastic neglect. The slogan of this tendency might be, I don't have time. Yes, I may be a sinner. Yes, I may be needing grace. Yes, I know that that's a beautiful place to be, but... And I'm going to ask you all to say it with me, because whether it's for this or something else in your lives, I know we've all said it, right? Our response to all of that invitation might be, I don't have time. But mourning gives voice to reality, that we can't do it ourselves, that it's not okay that we individually and corporately, whether it's the church, um, the capital C, big church, our country, our race, that we're so far from God's design. It's something of utter importance, of eternal significance. 
just like the other two tendencies of diminishing and denying, we can distract ourselves from just pain and suffering more generally. Instead of sitting with suffering we experience in our own lives or that we see in the lives around us or hear about uh, in the world, it's so easy and frankly sometimes healthier and necessary to turn down the volume on what seems like a suffocating bombardment of bad news. But when this becomes a disengagement of ourselves, a disengagement of the reality of pain, it pushes us to even lose a taste for even the things that are valuable and good. And now when I say um, that we might always say, I don't have time, uh, what we usually mean is this isn't important for me to prioritize. It's not important enough. doesn't make my list. And see, that could be rooted in a difference in belief and values, but I don't want to think that it's so simple that we could shame other people or even shame ourselves by saying, I don't have time. It's easy to be in a stance of judgment there. But you see, this is such a complex situation. There can be exhaustion, feeling overwhelmed, chronic stress, and just being in this mindset for so long. I'll share a brief story to paint this. Um, my grandmother on my mom's side is my last living grandparent. Uh, and a few years ago, um, we happened to be living in the same area. She moved back to, to New York from, from L.A. after my grandfather had passed. I moved to Queens after being in New Jersey for, for about a year. Um, and so I decided that I would make the effort to go talk to her regularly, in person, in the same room, not a phone call, right? to talk to her more and hear her stories and learn to celebrate her life for how many years she might have left. Um, and I remember on one of the first visits with this kind of goal and intention. I went into her room, we kind of caught up, and, and I threw her this question, Grandma, when I was growing up, who was, who was the cutest grandkid? There were eight of us. I'm, I'm number two. Um, and my goal was to call to attention the good parts of life, the sweet memories and moments, to try to fill her final years with more smiles and more joy. But you see, even after years after retiring, years after having new rhythms and enjoying her life more, when I asked her that question, her eyes went really tired. And she just looked at me and said, Richard, all I knew was work. and Life was really hard. None of you were cute. And I, my mouth just dropped, and I was like, oh my goodness, it's so dark. Um, <laughs> You see, for so many years, she was under this stress, and it was so hard to sit and enjoy what she was working for, that even years later, it was hard not to be plunged back there. And so when I say that we might throw as an excuse, I don't have time, I don't mean to throw that in a way to shame anyone, but to recognize that this is hard. Just like Paul says, I don't do the thing that I want to do. And similarly, this is the effect of not mourning our sin. We diminish, uh, we deny, we distract ourselves, and we forget the reality and the beauty of what God has designed and what God has called us to. And maybe our eyes only begin to reflect how tired and how drained we are from living in that disconnect. Jesus, when he teaches on this, he does present a blessing. He does present something better. Um, and he says that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
You see, it's when we come to a place of mourning our sin, not just recognizing sin in our lives or sin in our world, but sitting in that discord of our lives uh, uh, that sits against the design of God. It's when we sit there in that place of frustration, maybe shame and embarrassment, maybe guilt, maybe anger. It's in that place that we can be comforted by God himself. Because God doesn't just leave us He doesn't turn his back when we recognize our inability, when we recognize that we simply can't muster to be good enough in and of ourselves. When we recognize and mourn our sin, we can be comforted because he sees us and knows us to the core even better than we know ourselves. He knew all of that even when he died on the cross. And he is still with us, working in us, working through us, using us for good things. But similarly, again, with pain in general, it's when we put aside these unhelpful tendencies and we sit with our pain, when we acknowledge our grief, when we express our hurt in healthier ways, it can be such a healing experience. You see, when we're able to do that with and for others, to create a space to invite somebody else to express the pain of their lives, to talk about their experience, It's such a gift. And it's such a gift to have partners for that journey. In Christian, we don't mourn as those who don't have hope. For those who are in the family of Christ, we also have this end time promise, this eschatological promise that on the final day when Christ returns and calls us home, the final and ultimate comfort for our sin, suffering, and brokenness is there for us. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4 says this, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And we're promised that even though it's hard, even though it takes a lot of energy, even though it's confusing and there's no clear, direct path, sometimes, that our God is greater than all of it. So church, let us mourn our sin, the sin of our lives, the brokenness of the world around us. And as we come before God honestly, let us be comforted by him, learning all the more that he truly knows us, that he loves us, and that he is still at work in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Um, We thank you for the gift of your grace, for the gift of your presence in our lives, that you didn't make us and leave us to figure it all out. You didn't present or dangle salvation in front of us and called us to achieve it on our own. But Lord, you paid the price to give us this life with you. And even after the fact, Lord, you know we stumble. You know that we walk like toddlers trying to learn how to walk. And still you love us. And you're with us through that journey. So Lord, fill us with boldness, not to stand in our own sense of righteousness, but to stand boldly in this love that you call us to.
as we respond, Holy Spirit, would you, would you um, tug at our hearts that we might bring our sin before you honestly, knowing that you are God who already knows, yet wants us to come to you. Be glorified in our mourning. In your name we pray. Amen.